Hello, very warm welcome to A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is a live broadcast which is guided for the most part by your questions on the Bible. That's right, if you have questions on Scripture, maybe a verse or passage of Scripture, perhaps something going on in your life, you'd like a biblical perspective, maybe even world events and prophetic things, uh, any honest question, as long as you know we're going to delve into the Bible, into Scripture to find those answers. That's what we're all about here at A Reason for Hope. We're very glad that you're joining us. In a moment, I'll share with you all the, the various social media, etc. platforms where you can be joining us and sending in your questions. But for now, my name is Dave Robson. I'll be your host today and filled in those questions as they're coming in. And we're just too strong today, me and Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today? Good. Forever contemplating the limits of the use of corn so far placing it in a can for preservatives and even for use as a weapon that's that's all i figured out so far have you used corn as a weapon i haven't had to you haven't had to. <laughs> well i hope you never run into that situation but they certainly i think exhausted maybe all of the uses of corn it's in most things these days which is very interesting but corn sugar yeah corn sugar indeed who'd have thought of such a thing well i'm glad you're here me and you today going to be fun we did this before and it was actually one of my favorite shows so i'm looking forward to getting in the, the word with you well as i mentioned reason for hope is a live broadcast we're with you monday through friday 5 to 6 p.m mountain standard time here in tucson arizona that's where we're broadcasting from as always and of course you can join us all around the world through the wonders of the internet and we do have people that join us from various countries which is very very cool indeed uh, we are an outreach of calvary christian fellowship here in Tucson, so bear that in mind when you're trying to find us around all the platforms. You can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you follow that Watch Live tab right there, that will take you out to our live page. The direct link for that is ccftucson.online.church, but it's the same link as from our website, as I just mentioned. You'll see a countdown there to our next live broadcast and also a schedule of not only Reason for Hope shows, but uh, our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. We have a Wednesday evening service. We have three Sunday morning services and very other, uh, various other events that we go live with as well. But if we are currently live, then you'll see the video right there. You can sign in with a username and send in your question in the chat function. And like I say, I will be personally fielding those as we go along. You can go to our web, uh, excuse me, go to Facebook, our, our page on Facebook, facebook.com slash CCF Tucson or look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, you'll find us there. Uh, don't forget to like and to share. We'd love to reach more people. So if you've been blessed by this ministry, please share it onto your own page so we can reach out to your friends and loved ones as well. That would be great. We'd appreciate it. We have an app as well on your iPhone or Android or iPad or mobile device. Look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Once again, you'll see the white Calvary Chapel Dove logo right there on the red background. That's our app. You can download that, and that's another way you can view us. Or we have a channel on Roku. And we have a channel on Apple TV as well. So if you have a smart TV or a device with those capabilities, you can view our stream there as well. If you go to YouTube, the channel is called A Reason for Hope. YouTube.com slash at A Reason for Hope 546. Or again, just search for A Reason for Hope. You'll find us there. That's a great place to go if you want to catch up on the archives. If you uh, want to re-listen to a question or you missed a show, um, Sean here puts the, the questions in, the uh, info on the videos right there so you can see what we covered and navigate through the video to listen to those questions as well. So, and our services are on there as well. If you missed anything, YouTube, A Reason for Hope, great place to go. Our senior pastor who 
is the founder of this uh, ministry and started it uh, 20 years ago now. Um, he's with us Monday, Wednesday, Friday on the show, but you can follow him on Twitter at ScottR4H. That's ScottR4H. He posts highlights from the show. He posts uh, commentary on world events from a biblical and kind of prophetic standpoint. There's a lot going on along those lines, so it's very interesting to follow along with him on Twitter. So Scott Richards on Twitter, ScottR4H. If you're on Twitter and like to follow along with him. And last but not least, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. You can send your questions there as well, of course, anytime. If you listen to us on the radio, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded. Um, so you're not live, so to speak. But if you use that email address, uh, we'll get to your question on the next show. Questionsforhope at gmail.com. Well, that about covers it. John, would you like to pray for us before we move on with the show today? In the midst of our options, absolutely. Yes, great. <laughs> Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word. Equip Dave and I to not only speak your words, but also with your heart and your voice, edify your people and to glorify your name. Whatever is going to come out of this, we pray you'd be honored as a result of it. We're grateful to be a part of the process and ask that it would be done in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm, amen. Amen. Well, while I catch up on any questions that might be coming in live, and I encourage you to, again, send those questions in on the chat function of all those platforms, however you're joining us, get your questions in early, and we'll try to get to as many as we can. But I had a question from the other day from Renee. Uh, she asked, if a child is born out of wedlock, was the child not supposed to be here? We had a similar question the other day um, from someone who asked, where are our spirits before you know, a baby is conceived? Is that spirit taken from somewhere and put into that baby, or um, is the spirit created at that point? So a baby, but for the case of this, a child born out of wedlock, was that child not supposed to be here? Interesting question. Yeah, it's an odd question, but I guess one that may come up if you're dealing with the issue of ethics as far as why you should wait to get married before having children or at right. least engaging in the process that produces them. And I think there's confusion about some of the assumptions that are at work here. When it comes to the circumstances surrounding a child's birth, that's no more a system of value that we determine life by than, for example, we would determine disabilities. And I think the best way to start addressing this question before I go into an example is, of course, in the Gospel of John chapter 9, where a man was born blind. And the cultural assumptions that were at work at that day notes that if someone has something bad happen to them or there's bad circumstances taking place in their life, that's a sign of God's judgment that the parent's sins could somehow influence the child's life, which I think is the underlying assumption that if right. the children's parents committed fornication or even just well-intended uh, compromise before the wedding night, that's child is somehow a curse. We'll get to David's child not actually being an example of that in a second, but note how Jesus addresses the assumption when people are asking him, his followers specifically, that was this man a sinner or were his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither, but that the glory of God should be revealed in him. And that's an odd one for some people, and it 
as actually a callback to the book of Exodus where Moses is speaking with the Lord. And ironically enough, he tries to get out of the calling and all the hazards therein by saying, I'm not eloquent of speech for the last 40 years. You know, I used to be a great orator in Egypt, but now my company has been exclusively between my wife, my two kids, and mostly sheep. And you can say anything to a sheep, they're not going to correct your diction. So I've kind of lost my uh, rapport, if you will. And God says, who made the deaf, the mute, the seen, or the blind? Did not I? Now, we remember that scene in the Prince of Egypt where God snapped at Moses, but it wasn't actually until a little bit later. When God answered Moses in that way, he was making a point that disabilities don't hinder me. (laughs) If you have a problem with your mouth, I can deal with that. I've not only created people with these sort of restrictions, but that as we see with the revelation of Jesus Christ, God can even be glorified by the things that hold us back. We see examples of this with the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh as well, which feel free to ask as a follow-up if you'd like. So if we, getting back to the main question, look at the circumstances surrounding a child's birth or the circumstances surrounding their present life, while financial troubles may be a result, a consequence of their parents' poor decision-making, the fact that God would curse a child or devalue the child, say, that just wasn't a part of my plan, is a difficult one, I guess, in this case, because it's making the assumption, and we talked a little bit about this yesterday, that if God knew that child was going to be born, then he also knew his parents were going to commit the sin that would result in their conception. Mm -hmm. But there's two equal and opposite mistakes being made in this. One, that God's foreknowledge is a cause, and we, again, addressed that yesterday. If you have a question about that, feel free to ask. But the second issue that's kind of going at it from the opposite direction and just creating this whole big car wreck is on top of the assumption that God not only knows that the child is going to be born in the context of sin, but that he would, for some reason then, because sin was a part of the process, want to prevent the whole thing entirely, Mm. which is, again, Silly. There's no other word for it, because note how God worked the salvation of all mankind through deicide, through the allowing of mankind's greatest manifestation of evil to be exercised on himself. Mm. The permission of a horrible circumstance is something that God can work for good. For example, birth of a baby. So let's take a step back then and ask, would then the probably most famous infant in scripture, apart from Jesus himself, of course, for a set period of time, David's first son by Bathsheba, Mm. be an example of God Mm. punishing the child because of the actions of his parents. And while there are some who come at it from that, you know, left hook angle and say, well, the child died, died as a result of God's judgment on his father, therefore it would have been better, this is the faulty assumption, that the child just had never been born, that Mm -hmm. David had never committed the sin, that if David had lived the ideal life, he would not have been born, so God's uh, best will for his life was never involving that child. But you end up with a really intense roadblock when you, first of all, look at the Psalms and note that every child is valued and known. The days of their lives are numbered, yet as not there were one of them. Same source, by the way. But David had an interesting observation, and you can read this in the book of 2 Samuel, where he, for whatever reason, 
had the working assumption, and rightly so, with his God, that after his child physically died, he didn't conclude that this child should never have existed. He didn't conclude or form this doctrine that God's removal of him was, in fact, the judgment in of itself, mm-hmm. that the heartache and the anguish was all on David, but the physical anguish of you know not living anymore is on the kid. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, he concludes, and I'm being sarcastic here, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. He had the understanding that this child was not only in the presence of God, but under that assumption was also he himself headed that same direction, Mm. that he was the one who was going to go where that child currently is. And unless we believe that David thought himself going to hell, which he didn't, then we'd have to ask, okay, Psalm 23, 6, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Would God accommodate, compromise, set up a heavenly status for this child on a technicality, Mm. or would he be have been basically given just as much the right, the dignity, and the recognition, the love, that any other born human being in any other circumstance would be? And I think what will hopefully cap this off is an observation that was made by the Apostle Paul when he was speaking in Athens. He noted in Acts 17 that um, God has basically set the boundaries of man, where and when and even how he was born, Mm. for the purpose of what? Making sure that we didn't sin? To make sure that if we were born in the Middle East, that, that you know we would have been much worse sinners than if we were born in the United States. Right. Obviously not. Yeah. It was that we may search for him, grope from him, for mm. he is not far from each one of us. Mm. So as far as the circumstances surrounding our births and that being a less than ideal existence, it's making too many assumptions and coming to conclusions that the people who went through them didn't. That would be, I think, the first strike. The second is that Scripture never makes this assumption apart from moral actions made by the individual. I'm speaking, of course, of Judas Iscariot, that it would have been better for someone not to have been born. It's more a status of your relationship with God than your parents' decision-making, if you will, which is what I think brings us nicely into the second issue. And to those listening, let me know if that helps. No, a... Uh, a a child born out of wedlock is not less valuable, and we can establish that in a positive and address the absurdity of the negative from Scripture. But the idea then of, okay, so where did we come from? Is there this, and there's uh, Jewish traditions and even some pagan sources that have this concept of a well of souls. Mormonism is probably the most prolific proponent of this kind of idea that all matter, yourself included, is eternal, and that we are going to actualize our God status because we have existed forever, and in entering into this physical plane, the only thing we lose is our memory, not our eternal state. Uh, We dealt with this a couple weeks ago, but I think it is worth repeating. It smells of reincarnation to me. (laughs) The idea that, and the assumption that, because God is eternal, because God had no beginning and had no end, because we likewise will have no end, where we spend that's another question, why then do we have a beginning? And mm. the simple answer is because we're not God. 
Right. If we had a pre-existence, then we're claiming for ourselves something that was supposed to make the Messiah unique. Mm. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, there's a very, very, not only geographically interesting, but theologically interesting observation made about how Israel would recognize when their God showed up. Mm. Micah 5, 2, it notes, O you Bethlehem, Ephrathah, the specific house of bread that was being in mind here, that's what Bethlehem means, says, though you are least among the children of Judah, one shall come from you whose goings forth, his activities, his conscious existence, have been from old, from everlasting, Mm -hmm. literally from beyond the vanishing point. So if we are going to recognize this one who's going to come out of this little hick town, Bethlehem, Mm -hmm. specifically Ephrathah, Bethlehem, in the region of Judah, then we have to ask, oh, he was born there. Did that mean he started to exist there? No. Micah mm. emphasizes with Isaiah as a contemporary, this guy has always existed. Mm-hmm. Now, if that was true for all of us, what's the big deal of telling us that? Right. On the other hand, if we're noted Jesus is unique from all of creation, as not just creator, but as we read in the first, uh, or not in the first, in the first chapter, but in the gospel according to John, that in the beginning, was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mm. These sort of designations of him being with God wouldn't be worth mentioning because that would have had to have been true for all of us, at least to some degree. If, on the other hand, we all have a fixed creation point, like the angels, like anything else in creation, and will have a physical finishing point, but not a spiritual one, unless you are separated from God, and even then, that is an existence that's forever separated from God, right. so note that point. It's a mistake to assume because we don't have an end point that we didn't have a starting point. Mm. What makes God unique is the fact that he did not have a starting point. He, by nature, is the only thing that could. The cause <laughs> causes. It doesn't get caused. Mm. But if, on the other hand, we as the cause say we were never caused, well, then that doesn't mean you're, that means that you're no longer a cause. That means you're the causer, (laughs) if if you can track with all that. So you have to be very careful because it's, again, at the worst case scenario, blasphemous because it attributes to human beings things that only rightly apply to God. Mm. It attributes to creation something that exclusively belongs to the creator, and it attributes to those who are supposed to worship Jesus for these reasons, mm-hmm. claiming, no, I have those things too. Right. Well, we're not going to be given dominion over everything in creation. We aren't the ones who created the heavens and the earth. We're not the one for whom it was made. We won't be given the name above every name to mm-hmm. the glory of God the Father. That's right. So you need to note there are things that can and should only truthfully apply to Jesus. Mm. And when you see people playing fast and loose with concepts and like with the child issue, making assumptions that lead into outright blasphemy. Mm. Maybe not their intention, but they need to be sensitive. We need to be sensitive about those issues. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Sean. Well, Renee, I hope you were able to catch the answer to that that question. Thank you for for your question on that. Uh, We've got some great questions coming in. Appreciate that, you guys being part of the broadcast. A question from Neil. Um, This is a common question, actually, a great, great question. Um, talking about Adam and Eve. He says his daughters ask him, why does God ask where are you to Adam and Eve in Genesis when God already knows obviously where they are because he's God? Why would he ask where are you? Well, I guess uh, that's the 
assumption again if I assume the only reason, the only reason someone would ask a question is because they don't know the answer, mm. you need to spend more time with lawyers. Because my, my father's right. father, my great my grandfather, uh, he was a medical malpractice lawyer, and mm. he always told my dad, and also to a limited extent, passed down this wisdom to me, mm -hmm. never ask a question you don't already know the answer right. to. Why? Because in an environment of legal talk, you need to be able to show when someone isn't being honest. Yeah. Now, if it was a situation where God's just like, where are you, Adam? Yeah. I'm, I'm suddenly unaware of something, despite being omni omnipresent, first of all, but also omniscient, knowing all things and mm -hmm. being in all places. That's obviously silly. So if we've ruled out the silly, let's go to the simple. God's a parent. <laughs> He's created the Adam and Eve, man and woman at mm -hmm. this time, for a relationship with him. And they've now, working assumption again, he knows what they did. But because they were created for a relationship with him, he gives them the opportunity to come forward rather than him seeking them out. If he asks, where are you? That's a question that has an answer right here, which right. was the first problem. They had separated themselves from God and as a result were fearful <clears throat> excuse me, of the fact that he was coming into the garden, something that they normally celebrated. The first mark of our fallen sinful state was that we fear the presence of God rather than celebrate it. Mm -hmm. And the fact that mm -hmm. this fellowship was being now cut off, God's drawing attention to the first thing that's gone wrong. And the first thing, by the way, that he would fix, more on that in a minute. Yeah. The second reason, again, is so that if they tried to, and they do, <clears throat> try to get out of the situation like Adam does, it was my wife. And then the wife says, it was the snake, and the snake didn't have arms, so it just had to kind of take it. It's the <laughs> joke. The head, yeah. It was tail. Me. <laughs> Obviously not the case either. God was going to deal with them in such a way where they had the opportunity to seek restoration, but also demonstrated the second consequence of our separation from God. Not mm. just that our fellowship with him was fractured, but our fellowship with each other had mm. been fractured as well. And then, of course, in dealing with the serpent, the first prophecy of the gospel was given. And feel free to ask about that if you'd like. Uh, you can tell when I don't have someone else to bar my imagination, I'll just go 50 different directions. <laughs> the whole point being made is this. If I assume, this is just a recap, that God didn't know something, then I'm not dealing with God. If I assume that God did know, then why did he ask, where are you? Well, there's plenty of other reasons you can ask, where are you? Yeah. It can be for them to come out themselves. It could be for them not to basically uh, have wiggle room to make excuses for what they have done. Yeah. Or it was just, and this is oftentimes the answer I default to when speaking to the children's ministry, the call of a broken heart. Mm. Not just, where are you physically, but you're no longer in fellowship with me. Why has this happened? And of course, he knew why, but he wanted to seek restoration. So working assumptions about God, obviously, you ruled out the first in the question. It wasn't because God needed to know where they are. Yeah. But there is a possibility of it being because God wants to make sure they don't have excuses. It mm. could be because God is heartbroken the fact they had separate fellowship with him. It could be for many reasons, but obviously not the first. Why? Because we know things about God and the first obviously doesn't fit what we already know. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, and I'm sure, I don't know how old your daughter is, Neil, but 
Um, that's a great answer, Sean. Not only as a lawyer, but as a parent as well, you know, to my kids. Like, you know, what did you do or what are you doing? I know what they're doing, but, you know, you want to put... You did? Yeah, you want to. You want them to kind of express it. So I'm sure you can convey that to your daughter. I'm not sure how old she might be. 35, I don't know. But um, uh, it seems like she's maybe young. So so that's great. Thank you, Sean. And thank you, Neil, for your question. Great question. It's a common question, too. So I hope that helps you out. Uh, question from Robert. Uh, good evening, my brothers in Christ. Shabbat Shalom. Same to you. Uh, so my question is about magnetic therapy. I don't know if you're familiar with magnetic therapy, Sean, but and if there is any scriptural credence to it, and if praying over yourself for your magnetic energy to be in line is scripture, scriptural, or is it bordering on New Age teaching? Just wanted your insight. God bless. Magnetic therapy. You can probably... No idea. No. I mean, is there any... I mean, there's a lot of different therapies and, um, uh, you know, energy in the bo the body and, use, you know, energy therapies and things like that. Is there anything in the Bible that talks about some of these things or are they all just kind of new age and weird? Uh, to be, uh, I guess, humorous, that sounds like a bunch of commie gobbledygook. <laughs> but uh, now in all seriousness, the ideas that we come up with as far as how to and, and I'll, I'll just stick to I guess a word that I do know in that question is therapy yep. the appeasement of pain or discomfort mm -hmm. getting things back to a state of calm the Bible isn't interested in your physical well-being as much as your spiritual so let's just start with that mm. uh, when it comes to you know acupuncture when it comes to holistic therapy when it comes to dieting, when it comes to all these other things, to a degree, I think there's some people who would look at Scripture and note that, for Israel's sake at least, when they had dietary restrictions, that was as much for their good as it was for just to set them aside from all the other nations. When people would then take a step further and say, the reason I trust the Bible is because it gives us insights into dietary laws that would make us superior as people and the, the best possible life is going on this diet mm. and you know i think there might be some benefit to avoiding shellfish at certain times of the year we know why god probably just told them to stay away from it altogether but mm. if we treat the bible as more than what was intended i think that we're going to run into a lick of trouble i think the best thing as far as whether it's your vibes or your magnet your uh, magnetism or yeah. things that I don't really have any right to comment anything about. What I do know is that the purpose of Scripture is to deal with spiritual therapy and what we call sanctification, and there's also wisdom included in Scripture, making decisions where you aren't, uh, I guess, sabotaging yourself to the point to where you need that kind of therapy at least more than what's mm. expected given your career field. Mm. If people would say, and this is on the other side of the spectrum, therapy satanic. You know, it's all uh, new age therapy. You, yeah. you, stretching is satanic, no yeah. yoga or all these other things. Well, I, I don't doubt that they put, throw messages in it from time to time, but be very, very careful at focusing so much on the devil or focusing too much on things that mm. can just be good and say, well, because it's good, that associates it with the highest good, therefore it must be in here somewhere. Right. I don't know. <laughs> there might be someone who's made this their doctrinal field, but I try to just focus on Jesus when reading Scripture, and if uh, he was interested in our 
chakras being aligned. Right. I, I apparently missed it. So I yeah. apologize. I can't answer your question in an affirmative or negative, Robert. I will just caution against the use or misuse of Scripture beyond its intended purpose, which is, of course, pointing us to Jesus, not just in a practical everyday matter, but in an ultimate and eternal matter. Yeah, that's a great answer. And I know, I mean, even speaking personally, um, I've been through times when I've been in, you know, willful sin, and I, I recall David, I think it was David speaking about this in the Psalms as well, where he, um, it made him sick, you know, to his own, his own sin and struggles made him sick, physically sick, the stress of that. Yeah, his bones were dry within him. Right, right. Um, and I've experienced, you know, maybe not to that extent, but um, it's interesting. And I like what you said about the Bible dealing with our, you know, our spiritual well-being because that can affect um, our physical as well. So before going to maybe oils or, or uh, you know, your magnetic energy, maybe seek the Lord and ask him if there's any wicked way in us um, as well, or at least first, you know. Um, yeah, I've, I've electrically charged my body before, but it was more for the sake of funny noises with balloons, not, uh, not therapy. <laughs> I don't so. think that was therapy, no. It wasn't the well, Bible either. It might have been humorous therapy, but, but uh, well, Robert, I hope that helps you out. Thank you for, for your question and being part of the broadcast. We certainly appreciate that. Um, a question from Michael. Uh, hey, how are you guys doing? Doing very well. Hope you're doing well as well, Michael. Um, how can we glorify God with diet and exercise? At least in my church, we don't talk about this often. I don't think it's talked about a lot in churches in general. Well, kind of ties into the, the previous answer. <laughs> yeah. Glorifying God through diet and exercise. Yeah. Well, obviously the first thing that comes to mind is when Paul was speaking to his disciple Timothy, he says bodily exercise profits a little, but spiritual exercise in every way. Mm -hmm. So if we ask the question, okay, so obviously there's a lesser to the greater here, I should neglect my body entirely just to focus on the spiritual, right? right. No, in the Hebrew culture, these guys live and breathe contrasts. And the funny thing about contrast is that it can be, and I inform the student ministry of this often as we're going through Proverbs, the lesser to the greater, but it could also be the good to the best. And the fact mm. that there is a better option among many goods doesn't make the good less good. Mm. If you have the option to do a lot of good things, you want to choose the best. But the fact that you didn't choose the best from the good things doesn't mean what you chose is any less good, if yeah. that, that all makes sense. <laughs> so glorifying total, total sense. Yeah. If that, so in glorifying God, glorify literally means to show the worth or weight. And mm. I think if God is enough of a question in your life that you ask, does this show him as more worth my time and energy than whether you eat or sleep, <laughs> live or breathe, dr whatever we drink, whatever we say, we can do that all to the glory of God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, reps for Jesus, as the uh, bro science uh, ministry oftentimes says, people who ask themselves, you know, I've been given a body and I want to steward it, and this is a good way of reflecting that. It's all in the attitude. So if I ask the question, not just what am I doing, but why am I doing it, if a carefully thought through, not a ham-fisted, well, I'm just going to you know, say it's Christian and that settles it, but saying, you know, what does Scripture say about what I eat? Uh, if you, know, you take the even most broad principle of the body as a temple to even more specific examples, like Dave, or David, Daniel, 
through prayer and fasting, was put in a position spiritually where he could receive visions from the Lord, and it was a natural part of his lifestyle. Obviously, there was something to that. You can look in these ways, and as long as Scripture's understood and applied in proper context, and you're not you know, coming up with some bizarre cultic coercion of God and saying that, well, I'm fasting and I'm exercising, therefore God's obligated to bless me. No, it's just saying what I'm doing, this reflects God's character in my life. He's given me a body and I want to uh, tend to it. He's given me, you know, an inclination to want to exercise, to be able to steward my body in this way. I'm going to do it in a way, you know, even at the gym in between sets or something, not interrupting anyone, I hope, but just say, hey, that's a that's a mission field. There's a lot of mm-hmm. people there that are focused on themselves, and I can say, hey, man, I'm, I'm going to focus on Jesus in this situation. They'll notice, because mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if you go on social media a lot, but one of the running memes for people grieving and going through breakups is that they go berserk at the gym. So might yeah. find some hurting people that need some prayer. Yeah. But the point being made is this. Eating, drinking, exercising, uh, there are passages that can, in a very broad sense, apply it as a positive, not the greatest positive, but a positive, and that's not to be discounted. But if we make sure our priority is whatever we're doing in life, Jesus is a part of it, I'd say you're not going far wrong. Right, absolutely. Why do you think it's something that's not, I mean, obviously, you know, America is known for obesity, you know. Why do you think it's something that we don't talk about in church? Do you think it's just a kind of a, you know, gluttony's a sin, we just don't, it's a bit too personal, we're a bit too comfortable with it. Why don't you think that's maybe talked about or challenged more in in churches? Well, I don't know what church you're going to. We address <laughs> well, it if yeah. it is a, a problem. But well, I mean, other churches that aren't quite as, uh, you know, as spiritual as ours. <laughs> no, um, no, obviously, if uh, an issue is very prevalent in a society, I think you go to Europe and you deal with the issue of violence in social circles. That's mm-hmm. not addressed as much just because of the culture, not necessarily because it's just not something you talk about in church. Um, you go to you know, Northern Africa and pastors that start talking out against Islam aren't generally invited back because there's literal terrorist groups that will bomb the church next week if they find out that Muhammad may have been blasphemed, mm-hmm. which is weird because I thought you can only blaspheme God non sequitur. But the point being made is this. If there's an area in our lives that we aren't comfortable talking about, whether it's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life, there's a lot of ways that that could manifest itself. Mm -hmm. And if it's hitting home, (laughs) that's going to make a lot of people uncomfortable. And I think that shows wisdom on the pastor's part of saying, okay, if someone's dealing with this personally, then I think the wisest things to do is to confront it personally. Mm-hmm. If we're dealing with this corporately, and this is an extreme example, but one I'll make, uh, there was a church fellowship I was listening to le- uh, lectures to that specifically, and I'm not joking with this, specifically ministers to people coming off of crack cocaine. Mm. Like the, the fellowship is full of people with rotten teeth and you know the jitters and everything else. Mm. And the importance of that is that when they deal with issues like drugs, the pastor has no problem talking about it because everyone here is in the same place. Yeah. And the whole point of conviction, of being called into the light and confession, is that understanding this is a public struggle for all mm. of us. When it comes to a lack of self-control in any department, whether, again, it's lust towards food, lust towards women, lust towards men, lust towards whatever, and it's a personal issue, that being brought into the light, 
might alienate some people from fellowship. Yeah. And I think a pastor is wise in considering, I'm not going to neglect this area of ministry. I'm going to focus on where and when that ministry takes place. Mm. So instead of you know, doing a six-week-long uh, seminar on how y'all are fat and people don't love you if you're too fat, <laughs> you can say, well, you need uh, pastors to come and pray for you after service. Mm. I'm sure uh, we'll be happy to pray for you. And someone comes up to you and says, you know, I've been really just struggling with my weight. That, I think, is something that, well, that I think the Holy Spirit's definitely calling that person to deal with an equal area of sin. Yeah. But if the pastor, on the other hand, is wise and says, eh, let's just do uh, lust in general, and if yeah. the Spirit's going to tug at some heartstrings to deal with deeper issues, right. they'll be brought to people who can keep them accountable for right. it. You know, I'm, I haven't been able to exercise as much as I used to, but I can thank my mother for a lot of good genetics. I haven't had mm-hmm. much of a weight problem in my life, except during that period with medication. Feel free to ask me about it. I don't hide that. But in dealing with the actual issues, confession is something that needs to take place between you and the Spirit before it's done between you and your pastor or even you and your church. Mm. And I think if you give people the opportunity to deal with culturally relevant or personally relevant areas of sin, it's going to accomplish a far lot more than forcing people into the light and hoping they don't scatter like bugs. Right, right. Yeah, great, great answer. You said something um, very interesting, lust of food. And um, Michael, I'm not you know, sure where, where you're coming from with that question, but um, speaking for myself personally, you know, comfort eating and I guess lust of food is something I've struggled with my whole life. And I wanted to mention for you or, or anyone else listening who might be interested, great website, Setting Captives Free, which has um, studies, I think originally it started as uh, people who, are, who struggle with pornography, but it, mm-hmm. they realized, as you said, Sean, lust of whether it's porn or food or whatever it is, there's Bible studies, and I'll admit, I haven't looked on this website for a while, it may have changed, but they did have a study called uh, The Lord's Table, which was for people who struggle with comfort eating, with overeating, with basically an unhealthy relationship uh, with food. And yeah, so there's a study series that deals with gambling. There was a study right. series I went through regarding cutting yourself, self-harm in general. Oh, they did. Wow. Yeah, but, um, yeah. Smoking and the like. Yeah. I don't know if they still have the studies online, which is why Peter and Bo wrote their running light programs. They grabbed what they could from it. Um, I know setting captives free has a, a lot to offer though in that department. And yeah given their experience in the overlap, you can get a lot of benefit out of it. But if they don't have the studies on that site, uh, go to running light. Okay. Dot, is it net org. or org? I think it's org. And uh, Boalette has a good number of their studies on file, and I know because oh, I converted them to PDF. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that would be a good resource as well, yeah. Yeah, awesome, great. Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, I'll just reach out to us any, anyway, even our email address, um, questionsforhope at gmail. Uh, we'd love to resource you. So. So yeah, if, if that's kind of tugged at you, if you realize you have an unhealthy relationship with uh, food, um, there's some great resources there for you as well. So anyway, thank you, Michael. Thank you for that question. Hope that that helps you out. Thank you, Sean. Great answers there. Uh, question from Monica. Monica. Uh, are the Israelites the elite? Some say the elite is just the church in general. Can you uh, please explain and of course scriptural to go with it? Yeah. Um- Obviously, you can start with James. God shows personal favoritism to no man, whether they're Jew or Greek, slave or free, Gentile, 
I repeat myself. Uh, but if you <laughs> want to know, yeah, if, <laughs> if you want to know the whole reason why the Jew was set aside from any other nation, it wasn't because they were better. It wasn't because they had more to offer. It wasn't because they were stronger. It wasn't because they had more numbers. It wasn't even necessarily because they had the quote-unquote potential that all other nations just couldn't offer. In fact, just the opposite with the intent that Paul starts his letter to Corinthians, the, the Corinthians uh, too, where he notes that God uses the weak things of this world to put to shame the mighty so that his strength would be made manifest. God uses the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise mm-hmm. because his uh, wisdom is what's going to be in focus there. When we're asked, you know, the classic, you know, fiddler on the roof question, God, could you have chosen someone else? The reason why God chose them to begin with wasn't on anything or they had to offer any merit on their part. We're told this in Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6. You are a holy, literally set aside Mm. people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, that's where that term comes from, to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples in the face of the earth. That sounds like elite, right? Mm. Well, verse 7 says, the Lord did not set his love on you, or choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you, to the contrary, were the least of all peoples. Mm. But, note this, because the Lord loves you. So his nature, his decision, his attachment towards us, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, then notes the example of them being brought out of Egypt. He kept that promise. So God's goodness and God's faithfulness. God mm-hmm. made a promise he will keep, not because you made it me a promise and I just you know kind of had to fill up my end of the bargain. Mm-hmm. No, I made a promise, I'll keep it. I love you, I'm going to live in light of that. Mm. Now, if that's true of Israel, it's just as true for any other nation. But noting, and this is where we kind of get into areas that we can respectfully disagree with amongst uh, fellow believers, the whole idea of dispensationalism, that God's ministering to this world in various groups and types of people. Obviously, you start with Adam, and the line in the sand was drawn between the people of God and the people not of God, the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth. doesn't mean those were the only two guys out there having kids, but it did mean that categorically you would identify the people who followed God at this time from that family line. You had the righteous sons of Noah, and you had the wicked sons of Noah. You had Abraham's descendants, and you had the nations Mm. that were just going about their scary business. You have Israel, and you have the nations. Mm. You have the church, you have not the church. You will have Israel again, and (laughs) you have the world in submission to the Antichrist. So following along with this pattern, and again, negotiable detail, biblical dogma, no. But when we're, you know, taking a look at what makes the people of Israel so special, that's not as much a problem as it is to the contrary, because I think, obviously, it's been prevalent throughout human history, and there's a spiritual reason for that. But especially in our day and age, at the advent of the internet, it seems like Israel's the object of ire for everyone and everything, 
for no other reason than they just happened to be related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've had conversations with people who didn't even know what a Jew meant, (laughs) and they were willing to blame all of society's ills on it. Mm. So when we're talking about the quote-unquote elite, we generally assume that that's someone who is capable of more, someone who's been invested into more. You know, elite soldiers have more training and better equipment because they can be trusted to bring it back and not break it. Mm. Well, Mm. Israel, if anything else, like the rest of us, like the church, has shown the opposite, and that's the whole point. Apart from the Spirit of God, we're all just motes of dust on an insignificant ball of water in a vast cosmos that God should pay no mind to. Yet, God is a God of love. Yet, God is a God who makes promises and keeps them. And when Jesus incarnated on this earth, this mixture of Jews and Gentiles we call the Church is no more in a position of favor before God than Israel was. Why? Because he made us a promise. Because I live, you will live also. He who believes in me, though he dies, Mm. he will live. Do you believe this? Mm. The Gospel of John chapter 11. So keep that in mind when it comes to what makes someone superior to others in the body of Christ. Once again, James notes, God shows personal favoritism to no man, and that's quoting Deuteronomy, by the way. But on the other hand, we're going to say, why did God love Israel? Why did God choose Israel? Obviously, why did he choose them for what purpose? Obviously, they had the unique honor of bringing the Messiah physically into this world. Mm. But if on the other hand, you know, what makes them special? And the answer is nothing. Mm. Same thing as all of us. God is a good God. God is a generous God. God is a loving God. God's a God who shows mercy to thousands. Mm. So if that's our working assumption of God's character, and the security of my salvation isn't to maintain my elite status, but knowing that he's the elite. He's the one who invests in us just on principle because he doesn't really have a limit (laughs) to his resources or time or attention. So keep that in mind. Noting the love that God has for Israel is one that we should likewise share, just like we should have a love for each other and yet rarely show. But the point being made is just that uh, elite statuses, that's kind of a modern misnomer yeah. of thinking that because we contribute more, therefore we're worthy of more investment. Right. The only one investing in us is God, and he decides and gives to each one through the Spirit, First Corinthians 12 says, as he wills, yes. not as we merit. Right, that's right. Great. Thank you, Monica, Monica, for that question. I hope that helps you out. Thanks, Sean. Good stuff. Um, well, we, we've uh, come to the, the end of the live questions that we, we um have uh, received today. So if you're watching and you have a question, throw it in, you'll be first in line. We can get into some questions that were left over from previous days. We had a question from David um, on the parable of the talents in uh, Matthew 25, 14, so we can get into that. But again, if you're watching and you have a question, put it on the live platforms and we'll get to that. Hopefully we're about 11 minutes left. Um, But for now, question from David yesterday or the day before I think it was, parable of the talents in Matthew 25, 14. Maybe you could give an overview of what the whole point of that parable was. Okay. So, uh, um, on the spot sermon, go. <laughs> just a quick uh, qualifier here. Uh, I come from a, a line of teachers that believe that you should have no less than 30 years in ministry before you teach on the parables. Oh, boy. Um, I don't qualify yet. <laughs> but on the other hand, I 
can just read the text and give my two cents worth, take it for what it's will. Good enough. We'll take it. Um, the overall context of this, obviously, the conversation began in Matthew 24 and verse 4, where Jesus had, after pointing out the destruction of the Jewish temple, the apostles then followed up with him by asking, what shall the end of these things be? What things? The things that just brought this up, the destruction of the temple, mm. and then, by extension, the end of the world. And then Jesus clarifies the destruction of that temple is not the end of the world. Mm. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes in various places, pestilences, famines, but the end is not yet. Mm. The gospel will be sent out to all nations, and then the end will come, mm. after the end of this church age, as we call it. Right. But um, that's neither here nor there. Uh, a series of parables were given, obviously referencing the Old Testament in reference to the fig tree, which I can say without hesitation is a reference to Israel, mm -hmm. that they would be the sign that we would look to in noting the time of the Lord's coming being near. He clarifies unequivocally that no man will know the day or the hour. We mm -hmm. base this <clears throat> excuse me, on the doctrine of imminency. And then he gives another uh, parable, an illustrative story of two kinds of people during this time period. Mm -hmm. The faithful servant who lives in expectation of his master and the wicked servant who lives in light of his master's eventual return. The wicked servant obviously is characterized by his abusiveness towards his fellow servants, and we note this uh, to whatever point you want to apply, we can deal with that another time. But that's what immediately leads up to the parable of the talents. Uh, there's wise and foolish virgins, people who don't prepare, for the Lord's return and are caught off guard and they're put in a position where they don't want to be. They're withheld from the wedding hall rather mm -hmm. than welcomed into it. Is that then a sign that if I miss the rapture, or if I'm not expecting the rapture, I'm going to miss it? No, it's emphasizing the punchline that you should always be, verse 13, watching for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Then we get to verse 14 where he builds up again the same um, pretext and the same punchline. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents. Talents, for those of you who want to know, it's not like a skill or a gift. A talent was a unit of measurement that was, in the ancient world, the most you could legally require someone to carry. Um, hmm. In Israel, it was 110 pounds, more or less. In Rome, it was 90 pounds. I don't know if it's because, like, Italian diet or something, but you, you get the point. Mm. Uh, he delivers to them these very large sums of money. To another two, and to another one. To each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Uh, then he who had received the five talents traded with them, made another five talents. Likewise, he who had two gained two more also. Now, note the flow of these parables. Mm. Expect the Lord's return. Live in light or in the expectation mm. of the Lord's return. He then says, the one who had received the one went, dug in the ground, and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. It goes on to note that they were rewarded according to their faithfulness. But when we go all the way up to verse 24, he who had received the one talent said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered seed. So he characterizes his master as a cruel man, a bandit, basically yep. someone who steals other people's work, and he didn't want to lose it. So he, first of all, misrepresents his Lord, but I'll make a point here in a minute to kind of dissuade reading too much into that as well. Mm. 
And I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. If And he says, You know that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and that my coming would receive back my own with interest. So he's basically holding him accountable to his own perception of him. Mm. If you were really scared of me, you'd want to give me more. Mm. But you didn't. You just didn't want to work. So, verse 28, Take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then it goes on to conclude the point. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the holy angels with him, he will sit on his throne of glory. All the nations will be gathered before them, for him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will say to the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left, the king will say to those in his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for the foundation of the world. Mm. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked, you clothed me. Sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. They said, when did we do that? And in verse 38, he says, or verse 39, excuse me, or 40. I'll get it eventually. (laughs) 41, 42. says, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Mm. And then he says the exact opposite to those who are on his left, the goats, because they neglected them. He says, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? We would have helped you. And he says, assuredly, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go into everlasting punishment, but the righteousness into eternal life. Mm. So note, and I read the second half of that, by the way, on purpose. When we note the flow of this conversation, obviously Jesus has in mind not just the end times, but final judgment in mind. The audience of all of these parables was his apostles, or were his apostles. They were asking when the end of the age is going to be in light of the destruction of Jerusalem's temple. And he clarifies, it's going to be a long way off, so stay busy. Be ready for my return. Stay ready for my return. Be active until my return, because that's the result of neglecting what is it? You'll be judged accordingly. Now, people say, oh, so I didn't make the most of my Christian life. That means I'm going to hell. Well, this is why, again, they probably recommend teaching for a longer period of time mm. before going into these things. My opinion, take it for what it's worth, is that the punchline of the parable is the point. That all the little themes and nitpicking details and stuff, there is a place for that. There is insights you can get, perhaps, the deity of Christ or the status of a king and how he'll judge people and so forth. There's been good teachers who've done this. Mm-hmm. But because I'm a chicken and I fear God, uh, I think <laughs> the point that's made in the parable of the talents is directly then explained in what he immediately follows it up on, literally, mm-hmm. that the Son of Man would come and judge the nations, Mm -hmm. that they would be judged on the basis of the treatment of the Jewish people, my brethren, Jesus' biological associates in his incarnation, and also likewise just in our faithfulness as well. But if you want to cross-reference this with other ideas of judgment, like the crowns of righteousness and glory that Paul and uh, Peter both mention as far as the crown of the righteous shepherd, uh, James also makes reference to these things as well, there is a place for that. But as far as the significance of the little details within the theme, 
my safest bet is to focus on the punchline, which I believe to start in verse 31. Mm. That in the context of judgment, Jesus then ties this into their faithfulness with the opportunities they have. And in regards to who? To his people. Mm. How are you ministering to them? How are you occupying with the time that I gave you and representing my heart to the people who need me the most? Obviously, am I saying, okay, you want to be saved, uh, love a Jew? Might help. But if on the other hand, you're going to say, no, is that the basis for my salvation? Obviously not. So what do we actually know from this passage? Given the flow of the parable, the flow of the conversation, the punchline of the whole deal is your treatment of God's people Mm. is equivocal to your treatment of God himself, and Mm. you'll be judged accordingly. Mm. That should sober you up. Yes. So as far as the significance of the parable, uh, when you have more qualified men (laughs) present, (laughs) like uh, Pastor Scott, he'll be back on Wednesday. But, excuse me, the whole point, I think, is safest and left at that. When it comes to the topic, it was judgment. When it comes to the audience, it was the apostles. When it comes to the application point, it was godly living in light of the fact that you'll be held accountable for it. And, of course, with the specific mindset of speaking to Jews, by the way, Mm. your treatment of Jesus' brethren, Mm. that's also going to tie into it as well. Mm. Very good. Well, David, I hope you're around to catch the answer to that. Thank you for that. That question, great parable for sure. Well, we're at the end of our time here. Great job, Sean. Man, you you need to have some vocal rest now after answering all those questions single-handedly. You did wonderful. Thank you for joining us and for your great questions today. It's the weekend now. We'll be back on Monday, same time, same places. If you're looking for someone to fellowship, Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson, Arizona. We're by Prince on I-10 on the west side of the freeway. We'd love to see you. We have three Sunday morning services at uh, 8, 9.30 and 11. Come check us out. If not, enjoy worshiping at your home church. God bless. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.